Good morning, everyone. Uh, several of you uh, came up to me this morning and said, you're freaking me out. Why are you wearing a tie? It's not Communion Sunday. And so just to help you with your dissonance, let me tell you what's happening. We are doing Communion this morning. And the reason we're doing Communion this morning is that it's the actual passage of uh, Jesus doing that. So uh, we'll do Communion this Sunday. We will not do it next Sunday. And you will live. It'll be okay. All right? So... Just want to get you know what we're up to. We're in Mark chapter 14. And uh, if you uh, take your Bibles and turn there. Last week we saw Jesus anointed at Bethany. And by the way, if you weren't here last week, we had a uh, really powerful anointing service. Uh, you can download it and listen to it message. But uh, uh, we gave an opportunity for people to come forward and be anointed. And if you weren't here and you have a need in your life that you would like to be anointed for, you certainly can call us as the elders and we would be glad to do that for you. So uh, download the message and see what you think. Uh, in Mark, we're, we're rolling along and notice that Mark has episode, uh, has sandwiched this episode between the Pharisees trying to kill him, right? Kill Jesus, plot to kill him. And then uh, the verses that come up next, uh, so that you have the Pharisees trying to kill him, then you have this anointing. Now you have the verses we're going to deal with today which is the betrayal of Jesus. And probably nothing strikes us deeper than when somebody betrays us, right? And the issue on that is the closer, the worse it is. The closer they are into this epicenter of your life, the more central to the target they are to you, the worse betrayal is. And we're going to talk about a central core one this morning. So would you join me in prayer and we'll uh, go through the message. Lord, thank you for this morning and thank you for this passage. We're going to go through... A number of things, just kind of speculation things, looking at what happened. And the truth is we don't know the answers to them. You're the only one who does. But Lord, we know what it's like to be betrayed. And we know how we react when it happens or has happened to us. We know the scars that it's left. We know the wounds inside. And we can only imagine what that was like for you. And therefore, as we try to put this picture together this morning... By your grace, would you help us and help us uh, relate to you? And then, Lord, help us not to betray you as someone else did. And so we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. Okay, so we're in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start with verse 10. And it reads like this. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So as we look at this passage, all of a sudden, there is this sudden curveball thrown into the context, into the story of the enemies were the Pharisees and the religious rulers. Now suddenly, someone comes out of the blue, so to speak, and enters into the fray. Judas is an absolutely fascinating figure. Uh, one of the things that's uh, fascinating about him is we know very little about him. There's not a lot. I looked through several different source materials trying to find information on him, and there's really uh, not much. And his story raises fascinating questions. I don't know if you've ever had these questions, but these are the ones that always pop up for me when I think through this story. Uh, why was he part of the 12 to begin with? Have you ever asked that question? Like, you know, how, how was he connected? How, 
How did he get into that? Who, who did he know? How did, uh, there's just all these unanswered things that um, there are no answers for. His last name, Iscariot, means that he comes from the town of Kiriath, which is a, a city from southern Judah, but that really doesn't tell us much, right? There's nothing significant about that. And other than this, we know nothing else about his life. We don't know his background. I mean, there's just a, a ton of stuff we don't know. Uh, if Jesus knew that he was going to betray him, why did he include him in the 12? Why not in the 70 or in the 120, right? Keep him a little bit arm's length away kind of thing. Maybe it's like the old, there's an old uh, axiom in wrestling that the stronger your opponent, the closer you pull him in because they have less leverage. So that might have been that sort of deal. I don't know. But it seems questionable to me why he had him inside the heartbeat of the 12. Second question that I wrestle with is, how could he have walked with Jesus for three years and so badly missed the message? Right? Have you ever thought of that? Like, he was there the whole time. He heard all those messages. He heard all the explanations. He got to watch it play out. And yet, it didn't connect. And that's one reason, like, we always talk at church, it's, it's one thing to attend church, it's another thing to be the church. Right? You can be around Jesus and not be impacted by him. You can know about him. That doesn't mean you know him. And so we always anchor down, make sure you know him, make sure you're surrendered, make sure you've got that wired right. Because here's a classic example of somebody who was in Jesus' hip pocket for three years and he didn't get it. And then the third question is, what was his real motivation? What was he up to? What was he... What was he hoping to accomplish? What was he trying to get away with? Uh, if it's for money, that's pretty lame. 30 pieces of silver is not a lot of dough. It's not like that's going to get him far. I mean, that's a pretty cheap sellout for if that was his motive. Some people speculate that he was trying to force Jesus' hand so Jesus would have to reveal himself. And, uh, but that doesn't totally play out either. And so there's a bunch of things in the... You wonder, what, what was really driving him? inside what really made him do what he was doing the truth to this is that we probably will never know the whole story right just like jfk's assassination and we're now getting to the place where people go who's jfk okay kind of like a rolodex what's a rolodex we probably won't find this sorry rabbit trail we probably won't find this out till heaven right and then we're going to go ooh ah right as god rolls it out to what really happened and I think, I think we'll be stunned. But in Judas, the Pharisees and the religious leaders find an ally that they had not anticipated. This is a bonus. This is a gift. They're like, oh, we hadn't even saw that coming. They were, they were excited about it. Uh, remember last week the quote was that they didn't want to do it during the festival lest a, a riot happen. Um, uh, uproar would, would take place. This is probably, Judas coming to them was probably the catalyst that forced the timetable on that and uh, made them willing to move ahead past the reservations, even though it was the Passover celebration. They now felt emboldened. They were like, okay, we can pull this off. Let's go. On a much deeper level, they are unknowingly moving on what Bible scholar Michael Eisner would call God's comic timetable. God's cosmic timetable, not comic, sorry. (laughs) That didn't go over well. All right. Hey, I've had a head cold all week. Leave me alone, all right? But God's comic 
cosmic time clock. Gosh, can't get that up. Help me, Ben. Um, so the idea here is that as you look at this, if, if, you, if you read through the gospel accounts, you get this strange sense that it's not them in charge, but it's Jesus in charge of the events. Right? And as you, as you read, it feels like it's Jesus controlling the timing of how these things are playing out. Not, not the religious leaders or the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus would die on Passover, as we saw last week, and become the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so he is orchestrating this. And um, if we go a little farther, it says this. So thou were proceeding, it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And they sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Again, notice how it's Jesus who seems to be orchestrating the events. Right? Hey, guys, go into town. When you walk into town, you're going to see a guy carrying a jug of water. See that dude? Follow him. And when you get there, he'll lead you to a place and then just ask him the question and they'll let you know what we're supposed to be doing. And they walk into town and guess what? Happens just like Jesus laid out. Again, notice it's Jesus who's orchestrating. It seems like he's orchestrating these events. Do you want to know why it seems that way? Because he is. Hey? He is God. He is sovereign and he is orchestrating the events of his own death. Jesus says this very clearly and when you, once you realize this, you go back and reread scripture, you go, oh, duh, how did I not see this? Uh, John chapter 10 says this. It says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus was very clear when he was talking. In another place he said, I do do exactly as the Father asks, so the world may know that I love him. And so Jesus was giving lots of hints. And this, I think, should give us great hope for this morning. Because right now we live in a period of time that's kind of out of whack and kind of chaotic and, uh, you know, if you watch the news, it's not comforting at all and you can be kind of freaked out by all the news that you're reading. The Gospels tell us that God is in control even in the midst of really stuff that's bad. Uh, the Gospel stories, you know, if you read, especially if you're right now with, like me reading through the Old Testament, the, the story is full of twisted, bent, bad and evil motives. Right? You ever read some of those? Like, I, I just read one this week and I went... Why did God spend two chapters on this? Like, really? Like, wow, that's a twisted story, right? And I think that it can catch you like that. And yet, Scripture affirms that God will work out everything to its good at the end. That certainly was true back then. But I want to declare that it's also true of what's going on today. God is not caught by surprise by the things that are going on. It's us who are caught by surprise because it's the first time we've gone through them. God is working all history to the praise of his name. Uh, This is a helpful little thing. Uh, You've probably seen this and I, I debated whether it's worth throwing in. But if you think history and all that envelops in history, 
History equals his story. Right? He is working out history for his purposes. And so the point is, the farther that Satan tries to kick it out of whack, which he does a pretty good job on, the further God will do to bend it back to his glory. And so God uses all those things. Now this means does not mean that all things will go well for us. This is not prosperity gospel. You get everything you want, plus the go to heaven card, you walk in and aren't I beautiful, right? That's not how this is. We will probably have to suffer for this. But what it does mean is that everything will end up well for us. Right? Let me say that again. It does not mean that all things will go well for us. But it does mean that everything will end up well for us. And that's tremendously encouraging. God's wisdom, what you're finding out in things like this, is way beyond our comprehension. Paul tells us about this in 1 Corinthians. He says this. He says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. He's in the middle of an argument with the leaders at Corinth. Although it is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Satan thought he was winning. He thought he had it. He had the thing pegged. He had everybody manipulated. He had the payoff. He had the whole thing set up. He not only got Jesus killed, but he got him shamefully killed. And it was like, (laughs) and right when he did that, God said, thank you, checkmate. And scripture says if Satan had realized that, he would have never killed him because it blew the whole thing apart. The very thing he thought was the thing that would win the game for him ended up being the peace that he lost the whole thing. Jesus' death on the cross and then his resurrection. This, again, is incredibly encouraging. The reason it's also incredibly encouraging is because we live in an age of what I call spin. Right? It's hard to, if you watch, read stories, I, I do a lot. It's hard to know what's really true. Right? Like, for example, we live in a, a what we call the last times and we gave all the signs that you could look for and one of them is uh, famine and plague. Another word for plague is pestilence, right? And we're in the middle of that right now, right? Massive fears. A couple of years ago it was SARS. Now it's what? Coronavirus, right? And pretty soon we're going to have to wear gloves to church and shake each other's hands, right? Kind of thing. And we quarantine. You'll get here and you'll never get out. Okay? It's kind of deal. <laughs> but the... You know, we, we live in that and we're like, wow, what's going on with all this stuff? And I'll, I'll tell you, the, the truth is we don't have a clue what's really gone on in China, right? The real facts, nobody knows. Somebody told me this week they watched an article where they actually uh, welded the door shut on a um, townhouse or apartment complex so people couldn't get out to break the quarantine. All right, that's trippy. Right? What really went on there? Where is that thing really gone? We don't really know. Be a good time to repent, a good time to pray. But here's the point. God is not phased. He's not fooled or intimidated today any more than he was back then. And we need to be uh, rock solid on that. Okay, enough of a rabbit trail. Back to Mark's story. Let's go back to this last meal here. So the disciples go to town. They see a guy carrying the jar water. And so it says that they followed him. 
And when he entered the house, they said to the master of the house, Teacher, where is my guest room? The teacher says, Where's my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there. uh, Prepare for us. And so the disciples set out, went to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. The Passover meal is also known as the Seder service. We're a little bit more familiar with that. Uh, Philip Wagner has led us through that the last two years on Good Friday, and we've had a chance to watch what I consider one of the greatest object lessons ever put together by God that lasted over thousands of years. All the, all the incredible foreshadowing and stuff that is located in that actual meal that tells of what the Messiah would be and what Jesus would do when he came. It's a powerful thing. So it says they went and got it ready. Now stop for a second. Did the disciples at this point know what was going on? No, they just thought they were going to be celebrating a Passover meal, which they've done all their lives. So they thought, okay, that's kind of cool. But did they know what was really going on? Did they know what that moment was? No, they, they didn't at all. Can you imagine, though, I mean, think, for example, for just us communion, what communion means. If you were not saved and, and you, you got saved and the Lord rescued you and you came crashing into the kingdom and, and, and suddenly you realize what communion stands for and you just went, wow, right? And deep appreciation for all the things that God rolls out in his Holy Spirit and the different pictures and the different lenses through which we get to look at communion together. Right? Just, it's an incredible thing. But can you imagine what that moment meant for Jesus? See, we never think about that. But think about Jesus for a second. He had been thinking about this for how long? Before the ages of the world, says the Bible. This was the big moment. This was the big play out. This had been in the works. This had been an object lesson. Now it was going to be real. And the whole transition was going to happen right here. Can you imagine what that moment meant to Jesus? Try to connect it for you. Have you ever had a big moment in your life? Maybe a a promotion um, or or maybe a speech you had to give, right, at work or class or something like that. Um, Maybe uh, a move to a new home, right, that big, big moment you had to do that. Some of you know what that's like. Or maybe a graduation or a wedding. I remember when uh, Kayla was getting married and I remember standing in the back, right, that part where it's just you and her and, and it's just so cool. And I thought, I have waited my whole life for this. Wow. It was just, I don't have words for it. It was so stinking cool, right? It was just like, and we say what happens sometimes, the moment gets too big for us, Right? That's why at that moment, dad's always blubber and, and doing, ah, you know, we lose it and that kind of stuff or we get all choked up or we can't get through the speech because we're so nervous. We've got butterflies in our belly and our tongue's drying, right? And we talk like Pastor Steve at that moment. And, you know, <clears throat> we're all messed up. We say that the, the moment uh, just gets too big for us. Can you imagine how big that moment was for Jesus? I don't think we think about that enough. And in this moment, Jesus drops a bombshell. A piece comes in that nobody had anticipated. It wasn't anywhere on the horizon. It wasn't part of the script. He's doing this thing, 
And he drops this bombshell. Says this. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. So they prepared it. They got all set up. They come in together. And as they were reclining at table and eating, as they were going through the Seder meal, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Can you hear the explosion? Can you? Th- th- those words had to hit like a ton of bricks. It blew the disciples up. They, you can tell in their responses, they had no idea where that came from. They had no idea what he was talking about. They suddenly go into hyper freak mode internally. You know, was it me? Right? They, they, they have no idea what's going on here. Someone. Some one of us. What? Is that possible? Who, who could that be? And they're all thinking to themselves, was it? Could it be me? Right? Except one. One already knew that the deal had been struck. You know, if you think about Judas, Judas must have been a really good actor, and not just for a moment. Why would I say that? Think about what he pulled off. He didn't just do it for a moment. He did it for three years. And he did it so well that not one of them had a clue that it was him. He was not suspected at all. You know, if you think about under pressure, right, we, we kind of turn on each other like rats. Right? If you're in a group, there's kind of hidden secrets. But when the pressure hits at all, we throw each other under the bus, right? Kind of thing. And you would have thought at this moment when Jesus dropped that bomb that somebody would have cracked, right? And they would have all turned on each other if they had any idea who it really was. You know, not one of them whipped around at Judas and said, Ha ha, it's you, isn't it? Right? You ever play those games? It's you. You've got to guess who's the bad person in the game. It's, not one of them did that. Right? Or they didn't say, I knew it, I knew it. You know, ha ha, Judas getting busted, Judas getting busted. Right? Oh, you guys are so dead. What is wrong with you? That's pretty funny. Come on. You've never done that with your brothers and sisters? Come on, we all do that, right? Not a peep. They didn't have a clue as to what Judas was really doing there. In fact, the deception is so complete that if you read the other gospel accounts when they talk about this particular part right here, that uh, when Judas leaves, uh, they think what they're assuming is that Jesus has given him an assignment and that he'll be back soon. He had to go get something or pay for something that he'd be right back. They, they didn't have any clue that it was him. Later, when it really occurs to them, you start to realize how stunned they were and you can see in the gospel accounts that it did not go over well with them because Judas is labeled with consistently the one who betrayed Jesus. Like the most unthinkable thing in the universe has just happened and he was the guy that did it. The one who betrayed Jesus. There was only one person who wasn't fooled. That was Jesus. Jesus knew then And Jesus knows now. The point I think here that's important is Jesus sees past our posturing. That's why we talk about, hey, don't be plastic at church. 
We walk in. How are you? Fine. Right? Just fine. Yep, good. Happy. Yep. Jesus sees past that. You can't fool Jesus. And Jesus says, don't fool each other. That's why we're to confess our sins to each other. Why? So that we can be healed. Jesus knows that plastic doesn't work. It's unhealthy. It doesn't work. You need to have people, like in community groups, that you can pour your soul out, and it's what's said in the group stays in the group. And you know you've got people praying for you. They began... Uh, you can tell how much this rocked them because it says they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? You know, I can't remember I did anything, but I must have done something. Is it, is it me? And he said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That is a striking epitaph, right? Can you imagine that on your tombstone? It would have been better if they had not been born. Yikes. That would be, talk about incriminating. So freeze the video right there. Right when Jesus said, it's one of the twelve who's dipping the bread in the dish with me, from the other Gospels, we know it says that when Judas dipped the bread in the cup, it says that Saint, Satan entered him and filled him. And Jesus looked at him and said, hey, what you have to do, go and do quickly. Which I'm amazed that Jesus is calm through this whole thing. Just, it's incredible. What if before that, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, what if Judas came up to Jesus and said, you know what, you write the jigs up, you saw through me, it's me. And he knelt down before Jesus and repented. Have you ever asked, thought of that? What would have happened if Jesus had repented? I mean, Judas said, Jesus doesn't need to repent. Judas <laughs> repented. What if, what if he admitted, he said, wrong deal, I don't know what was wrong with me, you know, here's the 30 pieces of silver. We know he was carrying on. Why? Because after, he throws them in the temple. He's got the coins right with him. Here's, here's the evidence. I'm guilty. Jesus, could you forgive me? What if Judas undid his deal, admitting his wrong and seeking forgiveness from Jesus? And if that had happened, how would history be different as we know it? Have you ever wrestled with that? Like, what would have been different. Now, of course, we don't have the answers to that. We'll never know. But the sentence that Jesus gives is frightening, both in its wording and its implication. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Again, chance number two. Judas could have heard that, said, you know what, I don't want that epitaph on my tombstone. And he could have completely repented, fallen at Jesus' feet, and begged for forgiveness, but he didn't. And thus the name of Judas has gone down in history as the one who betrayed Jesus. And if you think about it, it was so deep in that no one names their children Judas anymore, any more than they named their children Hitler. 
Both names are the epitome of one who has wholly given themselves over to Satan. In the other gospel accounts, Jesus looks at Judas and says, whatever you have to do, go and do it quickly. Jesus, knowing what is now about to happen, then uses the Seder service to institute something new. He takes the elements of the Seder, connects it with a picture of his death and burial. We call it communion today. And we're going to experience communion here in just a minute. An act, an event, a purpose that is to continue until he returns. And if I can ask the servers if you would uh, begin to help and, and help serve this morning. Thanks so much for doing that. When it comes to communion, we know the Apostle Paul has instructed us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are greatly exhorted not to take communion in an unworthy manner. In other words, we're not to come uh, sinfully. That's one of the big pictures is that Judas was taking the Seder service and blatantly in the face of Jesus, dipping his bread in front of Jesus' face while he did it. And that's a picture of what happens when we come, we're loaded with sin, we aren't repenting, but we take and dip the bread as well. And the scripture warns us against that in a huge, in a huge way. Thanks, Rich. I was giving some thought to this this week, uh, and when my reading, I'm reading through the Bible again, and a lot of us are doing that together, and you know how stuff just pops out and catches your attention, and um, something was highlighted, I believe, by the Lord that uh, I thought might be a helpful insight into this picture and what that was like. The picture I'm talking about is contained in, in 1 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. You can go there and, and join me if you want, or just listen along. But the core idea is found in Samuel chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. And it reads like this. Samuel is talking to the people and he says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Now, the backdrop... Uh, if you know the backdrop to the story, it adds to what's going on here uh, with insight and power to these verses. So here's the backstory to that. Uh, the evil that Samuel's talking about was their demand to have a king. God was their leader. God was their ruler. And when uh, things happened, they were to turn to God and then God would rescue them as he had so many times uh, throughout the chronicles of the stories in the Old Testament. But... When you go back to chapter 11, you start to realize something's happened and they find themselves in a leveraged position. So what, what's going on here when, it, when, Saul, when they were demanding that Saul be king, when they wanted a king, um, what you find out in chapter 11 is that there's this guy Nahash the Amorite who has come in from the east and is beginning to invade the land. He's gone to the town of Jabesh-Gilead and said to the men, uh, Surrender. Uh, if you surrender, I'm going to poke out each of your right eyes so you'll remember who I am. So that was, And they said, let us send out word, see if anybody will rescue us. And so this is running through the nation. They're freaked out. They're looking for a leader. This is the pressure that puts Saul in the throne. Samuel grieves over the request because he knows that they are not doing right. God tells him to go ahead with it. He says, let them have what they want. He said, it's all right, it's by me. Let them ask for a king. And so they asked for a king. Saul's in store. 
And then uh, Samuel goes, or Saul, Saul goes and fights the battle and wins. And Samuel then says to them, to show them how evil their request was, he called up a thunderstorm, a thunder and lightning storm. And it says the storm was so great that it says they greatly feared for their lives and they asked Samuel to please pray for, pray for them so that they wouldn't die. Now, I don't know what kind of thunderstorm that was. I grew up in the Midwest with, you know, thunder bangers and you know, we call them window rattlers, right, that just about break the glass in a window. So I've been through some pretty powerful storms, been through a tornado or two. So I, I know it's scary, but I've never been in one that I sat there and was scared for my life, where I went, wow, this is going to, I, wow. So whatever this was that Samuel conjured up, had to be really something to the point where they ran back to him in utter fear, begging, begging for their life that he would uh, pray for them. What's going on here? What? There's, there's another piece to this. As so many times we always find, what's going on? They were supposed to turn to God in the crisis. Right? They were supposed to seek him. But they weren't able to, or maybe a better way to put it, is they weren't willing to because they were caught in a catch-22 position. What was the catch-22 position? They were worshiping other idols. They had polluted their worship with God. They had gone after other things, other gods, who promised them the things that they wanted. But now suddenly when they're in this catch-22, Nahash, the Amorite, comes and he's going to wipe out the land, they suddenly realize they need God's help and they know they can't pray to him because they've been dirty. And by the way, idolatry always has some sexual twist to it and Israel got involved in all that stuff. And so because they knew they couldn't go to God anymore, what did they do? They came up with a human solution. I can't go to God, so I'll solve it myself. What's the solution? We need a king. Man, if we had a king, then we could, beat, <coughs> we could beat this Nahash guy. And so they came up with a human solution for it. Have you ever known God would tell you no to your prayer requests, so then you come up with your own solution for it? Right? This is exactly what they're doing right here. So knowing they'd violated the relationship with God... And knowing that he would not help them, they resort to the human solution. We have to have a king. And it's in this context that this exhortation comes to them. Samuel says, Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Israel had a problem. If you go back in the stories, all the way back, remember when Rachel stole the household gods, right? And she faked having her period for the month so they wouldn't search under the saddle she was sitting on? There's been a problem with Israel. If you go uh, to Joshua at the beginning of Judges, Joshua says, you need to serve the, for me and my house will serve the Lord, that famous quote. And then they say, yes, we are with you. We will serve the Lord. And he says, no, you cannot serve the Lord for he's a holy God. No, we will serve the Lord. We are with you. And Joshua says, all right, then let your words be a witness against you. What was he calling out there? If you know what he's calling out, it sounds like Joshua is a clueless leader. What Joshua is calling out there is the fact that they were double-minded, double-hearted. They were serving both Yahweh and other gods. 
in that particular case, Baal. And he knew they were divided. And he, he was calling them out and saying, you know, you, you've got to do this right. Serve the Lord. And they said, oh, we would. And he says, no, you, you can't do that to what you're doing. And then if you read Judges, it says they followed the Lord until what? Joshua and all the elders with his era died. And then what? More idolatry and all those weird stories in the book of Judges, right, that you read. And now we come here to 1 Samuel and now we find them caught in the same thing and now they want a, they want a king. Anybody here this morning, like Israel, find themselves this week chasing after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. You know, that's the very picture you get when you look at Judas. He chased after other things that were empty. Whatever he was after and whatever his motives are, whatever his motives were, he wanted something other than Jesus. And it proved to be empty, if you know the story of his life. And when we come to communion, one of the things that is a big deal with God is betrayal. There's a lot of things he will tolerate and forgive, but betrayal is not one of them. And he wants our hearts to be holy for him. And when we turn and do something to betray him, that doesn't go over very well. So I wanted to take a moment this morning to think through this story of Judas and not just make it academic, but make it practical. Let's take a moment to be silent in our heart and just measure our thoughts and motives. Over the past couple weeks, has Jesus been enough for me? Or have I been trying to seek a human solution for my problems? Do I realize Jesus won't answer my prayer, so I'm going to take care of it myself? Have I chased after empty things? I don't know the answer for you. I know what the answers are for me. Okay? I've struggled with some of those empty things. Oh, you need a new pastor. Have you? You might want to close your eyes. You don't have to. You keep your eyes open. But just how has it gone for you? Where's your heart? Have we been guilty in some way of betraying Jesus? We would look at Judas and go, and yet we found ourselves dipping the hand into the till just like Judas was because we wanted to get some things that we know the Lord told us no on. Let me give us just a minute to be alone and silent with the Lord. And let the spotlight of the Holy Spirit sweep over this room and let's let Him talk to us. Let's let Him examine before we come to communion.
Jesus' own words. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And ask the worship team to come up and lead us in worship. As we close out, close out the service, would you join me in prayer? Father, it's quiet in here today because there's not one of us that isn't guilty. We all know. Whether it's word or attitude or uh, motive, we know that there's places where we operate and we're crooked. And we know there's places where we act like we're saying yes to you and then we're off dilly-dallying behind the scenes doing our own thing. Lord, would you this morning wash us, cleanse us? Would you heal us? Would you help us? We know we are in many ways foolish children. You say that we're like sheep. That's not exactly a compliment. Lord, we admit we get uh, twisted and we admit sideways. We admit, Lord, that sometimes we buy into that voice that's whispering to us, telling us you're the one who's at fault, not us. And then we look at Judas and we realize how horrific that is. And in that we see ourselves. Lord, we know you offer us the chance to turn. You offer us the chance to repent. You offer, And we want to take advantage of that right now, this minute. We want to come on our knees and just say, we're sorry. Would you cleanse us? And we seek you for that, Jesus, that we would, that you would be your own reward, that we would not try to seek human solutions to problems that we run up against, but we would seek for that greater grace that you offer in the time of need and that we'd let you be our leader. And we, we don't need a king, Lord. We need you. And so we seek you for that this morning and ask for your grace in that. Pray this in your name. Amen.